0: G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day dad, how are you doing today? Good to be with you Rowan.
1: Absolutely and good to be with you after a bit of a break. I must say, how did you enjoy your time off? Oh look, it was good to have a you know, couple of weeks doing different kind of things but looking forward to getting back into it today.
0: Absolutely and it was interesting to have a bit of time off I think because we were actually having a bit of a conversation off air just then about it's one thing to engage with these ideas in the first place but we also need to bring in that lived experience with it as well and that's one thing that I've really enjoyed over the last couple of weeks is I suppose maybe taking the pressure off a little bit in terms of new content but being able to look back and and maybe see how the podcast
1: has come into things here and there throughout the year. Yes. Uh, look, actually, just as one aside, I did notice, though, we talked about having a buy, uh, and, and it turned out we had 21 podcast episodes, and I was just thinking, we're also getting towards the AFL finals at the moment, and we always have a buy after 22 rounds. I think we, we were just sort of one podcast episode short, weren't we, the 22 and then the buy. Well, to apply
0: that same logic there, Dad, well, I think uh, that must mean we're heading into finals now, so hopefully the next month or so we can keep things up and, and live up to the. Analogy in that way, but
1: yeah, actually, we might have higher anxiety levels, won't we? Which will be relevant for this episode.
0: Absolutely, it will be, and that's a good little segue actually to get us into today's episode. So, we've called
1: it More Than Mindfulness, but what are we going to be talking about today? Okay, now one of the most basic principles and strategies in psychological therapy is when people are experiencing distress of a certain type, like anxiety or trauma reactions or anger reactions or pain, often these reactions are associated with high arousal and a high level of muscle tension. Now it can be difficult to think of how can we be less anxious or feel less pain or be less angry but when we understand that there's a there's a tension component, there's a muscle tension component that goes with the arousal, if we can learn ways of dialing down the arousal, dialing down the muscle tension, we can reduce our level of anxiety, reduce the level of pain, reduce our experience of anger and so It's a very fundamental skill to find our ways of dialing down our arousal level. But as we'll talk about, it's not just about lowering arousal. Often people have difficulty with hyperarousal, but sometimes we can have a difficulty when there are chronic stress reactions and stress keeps on going and going. We can also experience states of hypoarousal, and that's got its complications as well. So we'll be talking about some of that as well.
0: And I think this is something that's so—I feel like we say this quite regularly—but it's something that is really important at the moment. You know, I think the uh, the term maybe got thrown around a little bit too much in terms of unprecedented. It was a word that we heard a lot at the start of the year, but at the same time, I suppose I'd almost put it in the way that I just can't remember so many times this year watching the news and almost reconceptualizing reality. <laughs> if that makes sense, like you're sort of thinking. My word, how on earth are we in this situation? And I suppose just over the period of many months that there have been extra restrictions and that sort of thing, that sort of stuff builds up over a little while. And I think as with many other things, as we've discussed on the podcast before, I'm someone who may have thought these things to be a little bit contrived in the past, but particularly lately, I'm really starting to learn the value in some of this sort of stuff.
1: So yeah, really interested to talk to you about it today. Yes, and as you mentioned, sort of some of those chronic kind of stress reactions, we'll be talking a bit about the fight-flight kind of reactions that go with high arousal, a feeling of panic, a high level of anxiety, but also people can have other reactions like freezing and numbing kind of reactions. And that's where you get the hypo arousal. And there's a different way of dealing with like the freezing and numbing to how we might deal with the fight flight kind of response. But it all does start off with that high level of arousal. If we've got ways of bringing down our arousal level with breathing techniques, relaxation techniques, and other things we talk about today, that puts us in a much better position to deal with things also like post traumatic stress disorder or. Obsessive compulsive disorder, a whole range of especially anxiety reactions, uh, influenced by this difficulty managing arousal.
0: Well, I'm very interested to speak to you about that aspect of hypo arousal a little bit later on because look, I must admit, I think it's something that I'm certainly experiencing. I think a lot of my friends are experiencing and seeing it everywhere. It's something you hear they're talking about on the radio a lot and that sort of thing at the moment with people in Melbourne, but. Before we get there, I think it is worth having a look at this fight and flight response that we were talking a little bit about last week. So one thing that it seems to me about many of the reactions that you've stated there in terms of anger anxiety panic all this sort of stuff it can be quite often that we almost find ourselves in the middle of that reaction it's an involuntary response it's not as if we're sort of going to say all right now I'm going to get angry about this and then you sort of slowly build up your arousal levels you almost just find yourself in the middle of it and so I wonder in that way what can we do when we are in a situation when we find ourselves over aroused in that sense because from all those things you've mentioned there it seems to me there's maybe an aspect of helplessness Involved in them Think you know The times when you're angry The times when you're Really panicky it's maybe a lack of control that you feel in that situation that contributes to these emotions and feelings. So how can we then get on top of things and look to stop them if
1: inherently they're a little bit, I suppose, beyond our control? Well, they can be very automatic, can't they? And there's a clue in that. Why do we have these automatic reactions at times that lead to the fight-flight kind of thing? So the flight is more like the anxiety feeling. We want to get away from a situation and feeling maybe nervous or fearful. Or the fight you know feeling the anger come up it's because these are basic survival reactions like just say if an animal is in a situation where for example a a rabbit sees a tiger at a distance now that's a situation where you're trying to prepare for your survival so actually initial response might be to freeze because then the animal won't show up against the background. There might be that initial freeze response. And so when people are anxious, sometimes they wonder, oh, look, I, I just couldn't even speak, I couldn't react or whatever. Well, that's a survival response. So you don't show up so obviously to a predator. But then quickly it'll go into a fight-or-flight response. Well, first of all, fleeing. The rabbit automatically, once it realises it's been seen, will start to run as quickly as it can towards you know protection or safety to its burrow. So that means that just like you know, humans when we feel threat or an animal when it feels threat, your heart will beat faster, your breathing will be quicker, there'll be changes in your blood circulation and your skin response, there'll be all sorts of things that will be changing, your muscles will be more tense. Now this is to help you prepare to flee. And then if, for example, if a predator's catching up to an animal, then automatically you look to fight. So you need tense muscles for that, breathing quickly, heart pumping fast. This all helps prepare you to be more effective when you're under threat. Now the problem is, these reactions happen automatically in response to perceived threat. So we might have a perceived threat that, oh, we're about to fail at something, or we might receive someone's disapproval, or... We might feel really uncomfortable in a situation and not be able to manage that very well or we feel a bit overwhelmed by pain. If we perceive that we're not safe, if we have the feeling of threat, then these basic survival mechanisms are going to tend to kick in. Now, they can be overactive They can kick in too much or too readily, especially if we have, say, phobic anxiety, so an exaggerated sense of fear in relation to, say, heights or a spider. Or if we, for example, have memories of past trauma where that floods our mind and then we might have a reaction almost as though we're back in that kind of situation. So our body's responding to threat. Again, our heart starts beating fast. We breathe quicker. Now, these can be overreactions And when we recognise that they're overreactions, then it really helps to have some ways, some tried and true ways that need quite a bit of practice to help counter these basic evolutionary survival mechanisms, ways of slowing our breathing, ways of bringing down our muscle tension, ways of lowering our arousal to help counter that response which is based partly on adrenaline or norepinephrine, a kind of transmitter that leads us to be ready for fight or flight. So when we recognise we've got a pattern of overreacting in that way, we need to really develop some strategies to help bring down our arousal level. So how do we then
0: recognise what is an overreaction as opposed to a reaction at all? Because I suppose somatically and and potentially rationally they may seem the same thing to us. It's not as if you get a signal from within saying, you know, this is a bit overboard here. You're just sort of experiencing it as you go along.
1: Um, yes, but generally people have a sense when their reactions seem untoward over a period of time. So phobic anxiety, by definition, say someone has agoraphobia, a fear of leaving their house and having panic attacks, for example. Now, by definition, the person tends to know that their phobic anxiety is somewhat exaggerated. Just like if someone has OCD and they might be washing their hands 50 times a day or, or really trying to ward off certain kind of thoughts as though they're magically dangerous in some way or having to count in a certain way in one's head to feel more comfortable and safe. The person knows that these reactions are somewhat exaggerated or untoward and especially when they've developed more recently or post-traumatic stress responses where people get a very quick startle response or they feel very anxious when they're reminded, for example, of a car accident, if they had a car accident several months early and they might be having nightmares to it. The person generally recognises with that phobic or exaggerated anxiety, if you like, the person subjectively realises that their reactions might be out of proportion to the situation. But because it's partly based on these evolutionary mechanisms, it can be hard for that not to kick in, especially if at the time itself of, say, some original accident or having previously had a panic attack, if the person feels overwhelmed by a very high level of arousal, then there's often a trap that people fall into of looking to escape that anxiety or avoid that situation. And that pattern of avoidance and escape can actually reinforce the anxiety and so that's partly when people have post-traumatic stress or obsessive compulsive disorder and they go through rituals like washing rituals or something like that or with phobic anxiety they're looking to flee a situation if they are feeling like they have a panic attack now the challenge is for the person to learn to stay in that situation and find it's not so dangerous rather than flee and avoid it and get a feeling of payoff of the anxiety come down when you flee or avoid it, the person basically needs to stay there until their arousal, their anxiety comes down to the point they can manage, and then they feel, oh, the situation isn't so dangerous, or I actually don't need to engage in that ritual, or I can manage with that memory flooding back, but it'll pass soon enough if I regulate my arousal. But for people to be able to manage with staying in the situation it helps to have ways of bringing down your muscle tension reducing for example your rate of breathing bringing down your heart rate and so it calls for overlearning some skills in slow breathing bringing down your heart rate relaxing your muscle tension when you try to counter these automatic evolutionary mechanisms that kick in
0: well you've mentioned a couple of them there in terms of i imagine breathing and other relaxation practices What are some other things that we can do to bring down our tension in that way then? Because as you said, like these are evolutionary mechanisms that are built into us. So what else can we do? Because I imagine it's also something that we may have to find our own personal recipe for in that way too.
1: Yes, a personal recipe is a lot to do with it. And that's part of the reason why we're referring to today is more than mindfulness, because there's some mindfulness strategies that might help, but there are other strategies as well that can help people bring down their arousal level. And certainly one of the main ones is breathing techniques. And one of the basic things for people to learn is to be able to slow their breathing, typically by something like breathing in two, three, four, say through the nose. Hold, two, three, four. Breathe out, two, three, four. Slow breathing and learning to do that for, say, a minute or so, people will usually find some settling effect from doing that. But it makes a difference if a person's practised that a number of times Maybe each day for a period of time I've practiced that say in the morning a number of times so it can kick in a little bit more automatically when people are in the challenging situation itself. But then there are relaxation techniques and so there's a fairly standard form of muscle relaxation for example and on this website episode on the website page we will refer to a relaxation track that people can use for this but this is a tried and true method that I would have used for 40 years now. One of the tried and true methods, it's about progressive muscle relaxation. So the person might sit in a chair or lie on a bed. Generally people look to help themselves feel comfortable closing their eyes, starting with slow breathing and then gradually relaxing each muscle of their body in turn. Maybe starting with the right hand and fingers where we've got that fair bit of control, then right forearm, upper arm, then left hand, forearm, upper arm, shoulders, and then going through the rest of the body, maybe finishing with imagining a calm and peaceful scene. If people practice a method like that for something like 15 minutes or so, if people practice that three to four times a week for three to four weeks, their mind and body will get used to letting go tension from their body bringing down the level of muscle tension, the person will know what that feels like to let go tension and will be more sensitive to any build-up of tension in any part of the body like that. But if people keep that going for three to four weeks, practising three to four times a week, we know that people's blood pressure six months down the track, even eight months down the track, will be lesser just from practising that technique, even if they don't keep the practice going from beyond a month. Now, in other words, when people learn and build in some arousal reduction technique, it will tend to have long-term benefits. So if people can combine something like breathing techniques with a muscle relaxation technique, it means that if someone is feeling panicky in a situation and they think, let go the tension, like relax your shoulders, slow your breathing, let yourself go a little bit floppy, relax your stomach muscles, Or the person might notice they tend to carry tension in their jaw, for example. Relax your jaw. Let your jaw drop. As people learn that feeling of letting go, then that can help manage a whole range of anxiety reactions and including lessening of pain and things like that. But then beyond that, there tends to be meditation practice, mindfulness practice, and yoga. And each of these disciplines involve a number of similar elements. They all include Slowing your breathing, reducing your thoughts, and typically having your posture in a symmetrical position. That's probably so your brain's getting the same message from either side, so not distracted by anything there. But basically slowing your breathing, reducing your thoughts, which happens to be the same conditions that help bring about sleep. So very good when people have sleeping problems to learn one of these techniques like relaxation, yoga, meditation, mindfulness. They can all serve a similar kind of purpose in learning to reduce arousal level.
0: Well, there's a couple of things from what you've mentioned there which I find really interesting. One thing that brings to mind there is something I was having a a chat to or made about recently in terms of the difference between breathing through your nose and breathing through your mouth and there's a marked difference between doing the two of those things, you know. As you mentioned, they, it's almost that cliche thing, you know, in through your nose, out through your mouth, sort of thing. But at the same time, there's significant difference. I believe it's from even the sort of shape of the airway and all this sort of thing. But it's been very interesting. I've found over the last couple of weeks, anyway. And look, I've happily admit I've got a fair way to go in terms of strengthening some of these practices within myself. But at the same time, with everything that's gone on recently, and you know, even with you know, getting your your hour of exercise a day and all this sort of stuff I suppose I'm starting to see more of the value in doing these things which as I mentioned a little bit earlier I was potentially someone who thought them to be a little bit contrived at times and thought I don't need to do that I'm going okay sort of thing but I suppose what I'm wondering about now is I suppose just the opportunity of if these things are sort of helping me out at the moment when I'm sort of struggling a little bit you might feel a marked difference in your mood lift and all this sort of stuff well Imagine how that could be when, you know, I'm going all right with things and sort of, you know, there's not necessarily as many restrictions around and all this sort of stuff – it 's interesting to have gone through the process, I think, of maybe seeing more necessity in this sort of stuff, because, as I say, it just opens up so many opportunities to I think we 're seeing it in sport now, in terms of the way that sporting teams have embraced mindfulness and and those sorts of practices there 's someone Emma Murray who works with Richmond Football Club, and a number of other sports people and, and she 's incredible in terms of the way she talks about attentional focus and all this sort of stuff. But I suppose that 's one thing that I almost take from this in terms of it's not just hyper arousal in terms of when we're really panicky and all this sort of stuff. It really is about if we can set some practices in place, well, it's almost like the sky's the limit in terms of the benefit that they could give us.
1: Yes, and so these strategies are just so helpful because, like you're suggesting, in everyday life there are going to be times when we're going to be experiencing stress and sometimes it'll creep up on us more than we're aware but also it will apply to other areas of life where we're looking to perform. It's natural to feel anxious before exams, for example, and you're mentioning sports people, Well, one of the real skills for sports people to learn is how to lower their arousal level at the time. So just say if someone's kicking for goal, for example, in AFL football, well, if their heart rate is very high, then it's going to be more difficult to be accurate, and that's hard when people are running around before, say, they take a mark and they're about to kick for goal anyway, but it's very helpful for people to have ways of regulating that level of arousal, and that takes extra kind of practice. But all of us are going to experience that at some time, having higher levels of arousal, feeling frustrated. You might be blocked from a goal at a particular time. You're trying to achieve something and something's gone wrong. And so naturally that'll be frustrating and, and we could feel blocked from what we're wanting to do. Natural to feel a high level of tension in that situation. So we're using the principle that's called reciprocal inhibition. The more tense or anxious we are, then we're going to have that higher level of muscle tension. If we can slow our breathing and reduce our muscle tension, it inhibits the high anxiety, high arousal response. So this was actually one of the most fundamental techniques in modern psychology. There was a method called systematic desensitisation. It was one of the early scientifically demonstrated principles in psychology, helping people deal with phobias. For people to get into a phobic situation or even imagine being in a phobic situation. And while being there or imagining being there, people bringing down their arousal level and their muscle tension with slow breathing or relaxation techniques, and what they found is that they could bear with the situation better because it would be inhibiting the arousal or the phobic response, the anxiety response. So because that can be an uncomfortable and challenging aspect of life, if we can bring down our arousal level, all of us can do with that if we're looking to perform in a stressful situation or if certainly we're feeling a build-up of stress.
0: Well, it's interesting you mentioned sport there because I suppose what that leads me to think is you look at the biathlon as a sport, which is basically a sport completely set up around playing with this idea of hyper and hypo arousal. So. Another example that comes to mind, which I find absolutely fascinating, is uh, so Joe Rogan, the interviewer is one of the biggest podcasters in the world, and he 's someone who 's done a lot of martial arts practice in the past and, and I think jiu has basically been one of his martial arts that he 's engaged in, but He uses techniques of breathing that he's learnt in jiu-jitsu during his interviews, particularly the ones that are more robust. And you see some interviews on the podcast where someone might completely disagree with him and, you know, you can feel the sort of tension starting to rise and they might be cutting him off here and there and uh, there might be a a conflict building. But you can actually see his mouth almost making this slight little grin and it's an audio medium, so this isn't going to work well, but you can sort of see his mouth going... And what he's doing there is literally trying to calm himself down. He'll very openly make sure his body language is non-confrontational. And he uses these techniques in an interview setting in order to keep his arousal down and be able to discuss the ideas the best sort of thing. So I suppose that's one thing that I find fascinating as well is that If we're starting to look at these sort of things, it's not just situations where we are angry or panicked. There's actually a whole range of other situations where engaging in these practices and strengthening our ability to reduce our arousal at different times, there's a whole range of ways that it can pay off in the long run outside of even just, I suppose, managing with those
1: acute mental challenges. Very much so. So now we're talking broadly about the whole area of emotional regulation which is an aspect of self-control in life. And so actually that's one of the positive psychology strengths that we identified, you know, 24 strengths. There could be a strength of self-regulation or self-control. Well, emotional regulation through regulating our arousal level is a great skill to have. And then it can actually be preventive in terms of difficulties as well. So for example, if someone has been involved in a traumatic experience... And they turn up to an emergency department, say, after a car accident. Now, the person's heart rate at the time will be a predictor of later on PTSD. So there are two pathways to developing PTSD. One is if people have very high arousal and a high heart rate, for example, at the time, not just of the incident, but if that stays on for a while afterwards. That's predictive of problems down the track rather than settling soon afterwards. The other thing is if people have dissociation and numbing at the time, so they're just blocking out what's happening and not processing it. But I suppose more commonly what we would notice is after a challenging or overwhelming experience, if people's arousal level stays high, then you tend to get more of the reactions like phobic reactions or chronic stress reactions after that. So what we're really trying to learn to do in those challenging situations is be more like an animal, like a, a deer that might have outrun a predator, and it gets to a waterhole, immediately it'll calm down. Immediately it will regulate itself. That's a great skill to have. But part of the challenge with us as humans is we can have our imagination kicking on of, oh, what could have happened? And also remembering over and over again what would have happened and so keeping our arousal level up. But if we've got ways of bringing our arousal level down, that does help prevent the ongoing difficulties, but as you say, very useful skill to have in everyday life because there are going to be a number of situations when we're going to be over-aroused or hyper-aroused to a point where it might interfere with our performance or our well-being. Well, I wonder then if
0: these days, whether there's any technology that can be used to enhance some of these practices, like you hear about, for example, Calm, there's an app that I know a lot of people use, Uh, obviously relaxation tracks and that sort of thing, as you've mentioned there, but is there anything
1: else that you've come across that can really help with this sort of stuff? Okay, and look, it's great that you mentioned those apps and we'll have a list of a number of apps that help with mindfulness techniques as well as reference to a few relaxation tracks and mindfulness tracks that we've just recently recorded that we'll have accessible on this podcast page as well. But yes, there are a couple of other things that I think are strikingly helpful and one of them is a method called bilateral stimulation. And we've made a video of this Again, it's about a 10 minute video of showing how you can use bilateral stimulation to bring down your arousal level. And what it involves is if you can stimulate one side of the brain and then the other in quick succession, that's called bilateral stimulation, such as having headphones on and having a click in one ear and then a click in the other in quick succession. That lowers your arousal level. We actually use this principle in a technique called EMDR, Eye Movement Desensitisation and Reprocessing. And that often involves visual stimulation. It can be other kind of things as well, but where the therapist sits in front of a person, waves fingers back and forth... Horizontally, and the person's eyes shift from one side to the other back and forth, which also stimulates one side of the brain and then the other. This is called bilateral stimulation, and it lowers arousal level, and we sometimes incorporate that principle within certain therapy techniques for trauma and trauma reactions that can be very effective. But just say generally, if someone is having panicky feelings and they want to bring their arousal level down, there's an app that people can put on called anxiety release. And use it with headphones. And it clicks in one ear and then the other. So bilateral stimulation. And typically it leads people's anxiety or arousal level to come down quickly. So that's one of the main techniques we use in our practice for pain. If people are experiencing pain, we get the person to focus on the discomfort itself and maybe a level of muscle tension that they're feeling with that. But focus on the discomfort itself. Then put in the earpieces or put on the headphones This bilateral stimulation, a click in one side and then the other. And typically, people's pain level comes down. Their arousal level comes down. That is one of the most useful techniques which is deceptively simple. And it's just on a very cheap, accessible app called Anxiety Release. We'll have information on that on the podcast page as well. But that's one of the main strategies we use in the practice for people to get some helpful relief. It can also help reduce distressing thoughts to help people prepare for getting to sleep. Or sometimes people's minds have been overactive studying for forthcoming exams and that could be a helpful technique for helping settle one's mind, say before bedtime. So there are a range of different applications for that but that's one of the main techniques and also we'll talk shortly about biofeedback which is another form of technology.
0: Well yeah we have spoken a little bit about that bilateral stimulation on the podcast before but it's something that I actually haven't spoken to you about this dad but uh, I actually found it uh, really useful the other day and I didn't actually realize because without getting too graphic with everyone had just a a bit of food poisoning and so I wasn't sort of feeling great and I'd been up during the night and not feeling too well and so I put in the, the bilateral stimulation almost as just a get me to sleep please sort of thing and I'm sort of thinking gosh this just isn't working like I'm still feeling uncomfortable I'm still feeling sick like it's you know it's not the magic pill that I maybe thought it was and then I realized that it, for the first time all night I was sort of like lying on my back relaxed looking up at the looking up at the ceiling sort of thing so it was even the thing that it can kind of trick you into <laughs> into working
1: without you even realizing it at the time And again, that's where it's deceptively effective, despite being quite simple. But there are times when it's hard to muster the attention and the motivation, if you like, for someone to bring down their own arousal level with the discipline of breathing techniques or muscle relaxation technique. So sometimes it's good to have something extra. So it works a little bit like PRN medication, meaning certain anxiety-reducing medication that people can have at the time where they're feeling overwhelmed or distressed, this is a different kind of method for reducing arousal at the time that doesn't require that same level of attention and effort on your own part, so to speak. And you mentioned before that idea of biofeedback. It's something that I
0: find interesting in terms of if you look at the evolution of smart watches these days. Most of them are including biofeedback into them these days. I think you mentioned to me off air, Dad, that sort of back in the day, you know, 80s sort of thing, you'd almost hook up someone to this big kind of Frankenstein type machine in order to be able to get that information. Whereas these days, it's something that's built into
1: so many things. Yes, it is, and I might have made it sound a little bit more dramatic than it sounded, but there was some different technology then that was much more awkward than now for biofeedback. So what biofeedback means is anything that gives us feedback about our bodily functioning at the time that we can use to change our, if you like, arousal state or state of mind. And what we used to use... When I started working as a psychologist, what we used was a muscle tension measuring biofeedback machine. And so what we used to do is have this little box, I suppose, the size of a large radio kind of thing, and attached to that would be electrodes that we would sort of put some gel on the person's forehead, and we'd stick a few electrodes across someone's forehead to measure the level of muscle contraction or tension. And to set this up, we actually had a biofeedback room and we went across to this other room that had a couch that people would lie on for a relaxation technique. But part of the relaxation technique was ending up with this, say, five or ten minute period of biofeedback. And the more tense the person was, say, across their brow, then the quicker the clicks would be, click, 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 click. And the idea was for the person to try and slow down the clicks and they learnt to smooth out their face and smooth out their forehead so these clicks would go much slower, like click, 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 which took quite a bit of practice and discipline. It took often, you know, two or three sessions for people to really be reducing that muscle tension level, but they'd be getting this. Feedback that it was working and they'd learn that to do that they would slow their breathing they would maybe drop their jaw and let their mouth be open their lips slightly apart to smooth out their face they would settle their thoughts on one thing like saying to themselves relax or something like that so basically people would find their own way of really calming themselves down and they'd be getting that feedback now the terrific thing these days is we can get the feedback a lot more effectively in a more sophisticated way just using an iPhone or something attached to a computer. There's a group called HeartMath that have done a lot of research on biofeedback where what they're looking at is heart rate variability. So it measures your heart rate but the variation in your heart rate because it's actually good to have a fair bit of variation in your heart rate say when you breathe in and when you breathe out but for that variation to be smooth. So there's this way of attaching an electrode just a little clip to your earlobe and it measures your heart rate and heart rate variability and then you can see on a screen like the computer screen or an iPhone screen you can see this wave of the variation in your heart rate is it smooth does it have a high amplitude which is good or a lesser amplitude and you look to practice whatever you can to help it be smooth and with greater heart rate variability and usually that means slowing your breathing is one of the most effective ways and reducing your thoughts maybe by focusing on one thing (laughs) And as people learn to smooth out their face, let go tension, slow breathing, reduce your thoughts, then you're getting the feedback from this, it's called also M-Wave technology from this group HeartMath. When people are getting that feedback, then you can become more sophisticated at it. So it's got, say, four different levels. The first level's pretty easy. Even the second level's fairly easy. But as you get into the third and certainly the fourth level, that really takes a lot of practice to develop more sophistication, if you like. but So that's biofeedback. We're getting feedback which is far more sophisticated or detailed than we can possibly discern ourselves. And using that kind of technology and practising these sessions over and over again, then it can give you a readout and show the improvement over a period of time with your heart rate variability. So I think that's a very useful technology which will be used more and more in future because... It helps us make changes even, if you like, at an unconscious level. It's kind of training our brain and training ourselves what we might do, even different things that we can't quite put into words. And then the more practice we've done at that, then the more effective result we'll get if we're in a challenging situation and we just think to ourselves something like, take it easy or let it go or breathe and use some kind of mantra if we've got like a phrase or a mantra like, let it go, or I'll be okay, or let it pass, or ease. And so part of what we do is help people work out their mantra, but that'll work better if people have practiced one or more of these other techniques, relaxation or mindfulness, or using the heart math. It means that when we tell ourselves to let go, when we look to lower our arousal level, we've done the practice that helps that happen more automatically. And I will just mention, so we're not actually associated with
0: HeartMath, this group, but we do have them available for sale at the practice just because we do find that they are so valuable. And one of the things that I've found in using it is it's such a good tool for, I suppose, calibrating your feelings to the actual kind of feedback in terms of what's going on inside sort of thing that way. So it's interesting from what you've described from everything today, talking about these practices that we can engage in. It seems to me that what we're essentially trying to do is within ourselves create a state that is incompatible with high arousal in that sort of sense, in terms of we're trying to relax ourselves, relax our breathing, slow our heart rate. Well, if we do those things it's near impossible to be sort of over-aroused in terms of a human being sort of thing. These systems don't necessarily work together at the same time within us. So I think that's part of what these technologies give us in terms of this biofeedback sort of stuff. It really allows ourselves to teach ourselves to kind of go, all right, you know, actually, if I slow my breathing for a minute, what does that actually look like in terms of my heart rate, in terms of the physiological response? Rather than just thinking all right, breathe for 10 seconds, then everything will be all right. You start to learn the, I suppose, direct result of doing these things for you because it's going
1: to be slightly different for everyone as well. Yes, and something I'd like to highlight with that is an approach that we use when we use these methods. And so part of this approach is also recognising that when we're most struggling, we're really aiming to muddle through a situation rather than be right on top of it. So yes, we're looking at ways of getting more control, but the way we aim for that is what we call coping rather than mastery. So it could be tempting to think oh well okay if I learn these techniques I could be right on top of this situation and I won't be worried or struggling if I'm in a certain situation. Well for most of us that's not going to be so realistic or probably for all of us it's not going to be so realistic in certain challenging situations but what we can do is we can look to cope or muddle through or get by and the more we've practiced these techniques then the more we can develop what we call a sense of self-efficacy. Self-efficacy or confidence of managing through the difficulty. And so there are two things that we're looking to do when we help people manage their arousal levels, say if they're dealing with a phobic situation. One of the things we look to do is for people to bring down their level of distress, what we call their subjective units of distress. So we get people to rate their SUDS level, their subjective units of distress, on a naught to 10 scale. So say if someone has a level of social anxiety, and if they think that, for example, if I was to start a conversation with a stranger, I might feel quite uncomfortable, and we ask someone, well, how uncomfortable do you think you would be in that situation? And they think it might be like a, a 7 out of 10. But if the person learns ways of managing their arousal level, often that can come down a bit. But... In a way, the most important thing is to build up your self-efficacy of managing with that. So I might ask the person, how confident are you with managing that situation and managing any distress you have with that? Oh, I'm only 40% confident that I could actually you know, do that or it might be a more challenging situation like maybe going for a job interview, a demanding job interview, and the person might only have a 4 out of 10 level of confidence or 40% level of confidence that they could do that and follow through and manage their distress. Now, the more that the person learns to regulate their arousal level and feel they've got something up their sleeve that helps them get into the situation and face it, then the chances are that the people will build up their self-efficacy, their confidence of managing through that. So it's these two dimensions we're looking at. We're looking to help bring down our arousal level, not perfectly, but enough to feel that we're getting by, face the situation, deal with the situation, and it increases our confidence that we can manage with that and so dealing with phobias it's often the person facing the situation again and again like going outside their house going to the supermarket they might be concerned about having a panic attack or you know looking down from a height or being in an elevator a closed elevator for a minute or so again it's learning ways of lowering your arousal level having more confidence you can manage with the discomfort And then it comes back to personal experience. And then people learn they can face and muddle through some situations, get by. And even if something was very difficult or challenging, the person's more confident afterwards. They can bring down their arousal level. And if people have ways, for example, we mentioned the biofeedback. If someone feels really out of control with their panic attacks, and they might have said, oh, look, I've been feeling so anxious for the last few weeks. If we can show them, for example, that even within a couple of minutes that they're able to regulate their breathing to a point where it's a more smooth kind of curve. People often underestimate their capacity for getting back to a coping kind of level and it really helps anyways that gives us the confidence we can do that. Well, in that case then, now I wonder... What are some of the
0: effects of long-term hyperarousal? Because, for example, some of this stuff isn't necessarily super intuitive. So many of us could find ourselves in a situation where we've had many months of stress and anxiety and all this sort of stuff without knowing even some of the importance in managing our arousal. What can be some
1: of the effects of not getting on top of this sort of stuff? Okay, now, if chronic stress continues to a certain point as you mentioned the helplessness kicks in more then people are going to tend to have more periods of numbing of lethargy of low energy kind of thing and so there are a number of things that are helpful to pick up with that one is recognizing the effects of burnout That we would have talked about from a previous episode knowing from our own stress signature when stress goes to a certain kind of level or builds to a certain level for a certain period of time noticing how we're tending to maybe withdraw have more negative thoughts problems with sleep feeling helpless and this can also overlap with say heightened cortisol levels from ongoing stress over a period of time which ultimately could be depleting of energy different reactions that we have so there are a number of things that we can look at here one is to look to acknowledge that we're feeling overwhelmed we're feeling stressed in a range of different ways so watching out for what expectations that we have of ourselves pulling back some of our usual expectations so we might pair things back to what are the main priorities we want to deal with getting routines in place If we've got good routines in place or adapting our routines for, say, if we're going through a period of lockdown or if there are changed circumstances in our work, looking to tweak or re-establish routines, that, that means we don't have to muster up quite as much energy to motivate ourselves to do things a certain way. We've got these routines built in that help us plan what we do one thing after the other. In a way, it sort of takes some of the pressure off ourselves. But I think one of the other main things if we're experiencing these periods of depletion is physical exercise. The main way we can get more energy consistently over a period of time is to step up our level of physical exercise. Now that can be very tricky because when you're feeling tired and lethargic, You might not feel like going out for a jog or having a game of tennis or going for a brisk walk but it makes a big difference to be able to do those things because if people are feeling depleted and numb and withdrawn and then in a sense get stuck in that kind of pattern, it's very hard to get out of it and the person might feel tired and might feel like doing nothing but doing nothing is one of the worst things then. Sometimes you actually have to increase your arousal level And one of the good things about sport and exercise is it engages in healthy muscle tension and arousal and after a period of that you can have a more if you like healthy or natural period of relaxation after that. You're not just feeling withdrawn or being isolated it's like having expended effort and energy and then your muscles are also more ready to have that more comfortable kind of relaxation that can be refreshing and re-energizing can help recharge your batteries. So it's also important to have different ways that do recharge our batteries, different activities that we know are enjoyable to us or give us a sense of achievement. But particularly yeah, things that we enjoy and that can be relaxing and, and fun or encouraging in certain kind of ways, but in a way that recharges our batteries. It's good that we know some things like that that we can do rather than get stuck with low energy and being withdrawn. So routines Physical exercise and some ways of recharging our batteries, they would be some of the key things. Well, it's interesting. Talking about this dimension of hypoarousal. One way I heard
0: it explained the other day was in the context of if we're talking about these survival mechanisms, you talk about fight-flight-freeze. Well, part of it is the freeze at the moment in terms of like, I don't know about many others out there, but it can feel like we've been working so hard, but looking ahead, you sort of, you see this mountain of work that's still there and it can almost make it hard to get into things that way, so it's interesting hearing what you're talking about there because A lot of the time, it's not necessarily natural, quite often we're drawn away from doing those sorts of things, but I think it really highlights the benefit, as we've spoken a little bit on the podcast before, about doing what you can and noticing, you know, today, you know, I just went for a run, and that's all I did, but I went for a run, or I made dinner tonight. It was delicious. The rest of the day was a write-off, but I made a delicious dinner sort of thing. And I think from what you're explaining there, to me that really highlights the cumulative effect of some of this sort of stuff. If you are in a situation where you're feeling very hypo-aroused, and you're struggling to get yourself going, well, although it may be tough to do that first thing, the hardest thing is potentially going to be that first thing because then you get that little reward from completing that. Then you're able to look to the next goal and, and as you've described, our confidence is increasing throughout the time. So I think it's a very important point to make that when you are in that situation, just do what you can and just pat yourself on the back for it, even if it's so contrived. Like the other day I went for a walk in the rain. And that that was just enough. And that was fine. That was good. So I think for me anyway, it's really getting the ball rolling whichever way you can. And for each of us, it's going to be slightly different
1: to how we do that. That's a great way of putting it. And some things that come to mind there are focusing on micro moments of joy. It's like if someone's dealing with a chronic illness. There's not going to be sometimes much joy that one can look to in a particular day, but there might be moments of joy. It's noticing that. It might be a beautiful sunset or it might be lighting a candle or having a pleasant bath or listening to a piece of music or a conversation with a friend or or just someone smiled at you a certain way and feeling appreciative of that. So it's partly having lesser expectations when we're feeling overwhelmed and looking for those little things like you're mentioning. One thing it does remind me of what we're talking about as well is if people get stuck for a period of time in feeling numb for a lengthy period of time, especially if people have had past trauma reactions, for example. There's certain experiences people can have where they have the freeze-numbing kind of response which relates to dissociation. And so we also have a podcast on dissociation if people have trauma reactions and they're stuck with feelings of numbness for a lengthy period of time and that feeling of very low arousal level. That's partly from people's frontal lobes being switched off feeling overwhelmed by emotion and having your frontal lobe switched off. If that's a more general part of someone's difficulties and especially if people have had repeated trauma in life and they're having that numbing reaction more, I'd suggest that they listen to the dissociation episode. And...
0: Just on that, finishing up in terms of some of the other resources that we do have available on the website, as Dad mentioned, we've got a number of relaxation tracks on the website that we've recently recorded and put up and, and look, oh, I can happily vouch for them, sort of say that the other day when we were doing I nearly fell asleep in the chair, so hopefully everyone can check those out, but even just spending a little bit of time to reflect on your own little recipe for this sort of stuff, because as we mentioned, it is going to be different for everyone, everyone's in a slightly different situation particularly if you're someone for example in metropolitan melbourne as opposed to regional victoria as opposed to other parts of australia and the world so so we'll put up a whole range of resources on the podcast page at chrismackey.com.au slash podcast and i hope everyone is able to get something from it out there and strengthen some of these practices as i know i'll go back to the drawing board and look to do a little bit more as well
1: Good then, Rowan. And one final thing I'll say is I think it's helpful if people find their own method, as you're mentioning. So it might be something from one of the apps that we put up. It might be one of the relaxation tracks that we've put up on our website. Or it might be some other technique that people are aware of. But the key is that people practice actively, actively practicing. It's using relaxation techniques or mindfulness techniques in an active way. So we make it more habitual. So if we say to ourselves, take it easy, breathe, relax, whatever, so our mind and body know more what to do. So that tends to take repeated practice. But if we have one of those strategies under our belts that we can come back to, that's very helpful for managing arousal generally. Well, thanks very much
0: for chatting with me today, Dad. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to next week. It's good to be back. It is good to be back, Rowan.